0: was one of five children. My parents were really seekers. They were always looking for something more. So I had read it all. When most kids would go outside to play, we needed to come home from school and meditate. When it's your family, you think it's normal, because that's all you know. There was a time with the troubles my folks were going through I was told that if I was a better child, that this wouldn't be happening. I so internalized that. That was the start of me being a perfectionist, a performer. I was gonna be the perfect child, and I was gonna be in charge. Tom and I met our freshman year of college. We dated all through college, and then right after college, we got married. We both had a lot of baggage that came with us into our marriage. For me, nothing was ever good enough. Kids were not going to affect me. I was so career-driven. I had such lack of trust. It was just kind of this ticking time bomb, really when we had the kids. We started fighting a lot. So we moved to Atlanta thinking that was gonna solve our issues. We had friends from college that said they had friends in the area we were living, so they set us up. This was the most loving couple. Tom and I both noticed it and we said to them, why are you this way? And they said, well we go to church. I'm like, well that's the answer, we need to go to church. I started reading the Bible and it just made sense to me. I wanted to know more. In one of the books that we studied, there was this question, how do you know you know me? I went in our dining room and I just got down on my knees and I said, Lord, I don't know you, why don't I know you? He said, because you don't trust me. And that was exactly it. I didn't trust really anybody. And I said, well, I want to know you, and I will trust you. From there on, I just couldn't get enough of the Bible. Satan starts with the head of the household. When there is sin in the family, it's going to trickle. I assumed Tom was the same place I was at. He hadn't accepted Jesus. I had just assumed he had. I just knew I was to start praying for him. It was pretty soon after that that everything kind of hit the fan in our marriage. There was lots of conflict. I said to Tom, I will fight for our marriage. I will fight for our family. But I have to know what I'm fighting. He didn't know the Lord. He told me that he was really living a counter-life of complete darkness. I was done. I don't deserve this. We went to separate rooms and I just was crying and crying and crying. And The Lord said to me, I mean, he said that you need to forgive him. And I said, no, I cannot forgive him. In my heart, I knew he wasn't. Asking me to, he was telling me to. I went to Tom and I put my hands on him. And I said, I forgive you because you are beautifully and wonderfully made by God. And Tom just fell apart. He repented. He told me that he was going to be done with that counter-life. We were really meant to be another ugly statistic and we're not. And that's only because of God's grace. Tom was so trusting in the Lord. He had his Heavenly Father that was teaching him, and he was carrying the mantle for the family. The Lord was just redeeming our family. Every prayer that I prayed in that Praying Wife book, he answered every single one of those prayers in our lives. I wanted to come to Church of the Apostles and so one morning I get up and he's like would it be okay with you if we checked out Church of the Apostles and I'm like that would be great (laughs) we got into a great small group that would share their struggles and we would share our struggles and it was transparent Now Tom is leading our small group. I can't imagine not having the support we have. Sometimes I think people look at Church of the Apostles as being so big and so grand, but it's the heart. It's not the building. It's the people. It can be a small church and a big church. I don't want to forget where the Lord brought me from. I have memories of who I was, and I'm glad I have that, because He's the only one that transforms our daughters and their husbands that love the Lord. They're raising their kids in the Word. That's amazing. We get to be the start of that legacy Jesus has given us. I'm just so thankful that I'm His.
1: So good morning, everyone. How are y'all? You guys answer questions from the pulpit. Amazing. Absolutely wonderful. Uh, if you would, let's turn in or turn on our Bibles, whatever the case may be, and let's go to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. If you're using the blue Pew Bible in front of you, uh, it's going to be on page 1834. 1834, Colossians chapter 3. My name is Kevin Cuthbertson. I'm one of the family's pastors here. And. Um, I just want to draw your attention to something first off. You may, while you're looking, continue to look for that passage, but you may have noticed around this church, you're seeing this placed everywhere. I I want to explain it. I I want to talk to you about it this morning and tell you why, why you're seeing that. Uh, It's simple. It's only five words. And yet as pastors, this is what we are praying for. This is what we're pursuing This is what we desire. And the reason we desire it is because this is what we believe God desires for his people. Not only that they would belong to Jesus, but that they would belong together. And I want us to look at that this morning from the book of Colossians. And in that book, Paul's writing to the church at Colossae. And this is how he starts it. He says this, he says, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. And he starts the letter by saying, guys, I want you to know that we thank God for you, that we pray for you regularly, that ever since we heard of what God had done, we've been praying for you because we heard of your love for the saints. He says, you've been like this since the gospel came to you. And this is what he's essentially saying. He says, I heard how well you love the saints. You see, Paul's never met this church. He's never been there. He wasn't the one that planted it, but he knows them by their reputation, that they are a church that loves the people of God. They are a church that loves one another. And he says, when I heard that, we started praying. And when we pray, we give thanks because your faith is evidenced by your love for the saints. Did you catch that? I thank God for you because your faith is proven. And how is it proven? By how you love the people of God. He said it's noticeable, it's tangible, it's shown. We've heard of it. Paul's saying essentially what Jesus said, isn't he? They will know you are my disciples by how you love one another, by your love for one another. And I think that's something we need to be challenged with, not necessarily this morning for any specific reason, but regularly. Is our faith evident in the way that we love one another? Because you want to know how the world will see it? Jesus is praying for his people in John 17, and this is what he asks his father for, that his people would be united, that they would love one another so that the gospel would be shown true to the world. You ever caught that? Jesus says, I want them to love one another so that you, so that it will be shown and it will be evident that you, God, sent me, so that the gospel will be shown to be true. He's praying, essentially, that they would not only belong to him, but that they would belong together not only that they would love Him, but that they would love one another. So let's read this together, starting at Colossians. We're going to be in chapter 3, and we're going to start at verse 12. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. This is what Paul writes under the inspiration of the Spirit. He says, "'Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I was thinking of that song we were singing a few minutes ago, Holy, Holy, Holy. And where that song comes from in scriptures, how the angels are singing to you, and yet because of your holiness, because of your might, because of your power, they're having to cover their, their eyes. They can't look upon you. They're having to cover their feet. They can't be in your, the holiness of your presence without being covered. And Father, I thank you that when Jesus died, the veil was torn that kept us from you, that we come And the cover he provides is, as Hebrews says, boldly and confidently into your presence. And, Father, we thank you for Christ, without whom none of us could come and stand before you. Father, you have said that every time your word goes out, it always achieves the purpose for which you sent it. And so we pray, Father. Because there's nowhere else to go. There's no one else to ask this. You alone have the word of life that you would purpose mighty things for our gathering this morning. That as your word is preached, as your word is prayed, as your word is sung, your people would be encouraged and, and built up in the gospel. They would be encouraged and built up and unified together so that the gospel would be shown to be true, not only to us but to the world around us. And Father, I pray this morning for those who are here who may not know you, who may not be trusting in you. God, we're so glad they're here. And we pray your abundant kindness, mercy, and power to be evident in their lives through salvation. Give them eyes to see, ears to hear, faith to trust in Christ, and be saved this morning. You alone can do that. And so, Father, we lay this gathering before you and ask you to move to glorify your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen. Okay, So I was speaking to a pastor buddy of mine a couple of years ago, and I remember something he said to me. He he pastored a, a, a namely younger congregation, and he said this to me. He says, every time I preach do's and don'ts, Whenever I preach imperatives, commands of how to live and how not to live, he says I can tell that my congregation kind of bucks against it. They don't like it. They don't like to be told what to do, what not to do. They they claim he's a th- that I'm a legalist sometimes. And I, I want to say up front that reading this passage here, in one sense, ultimately is a, it is a list of do's and don'ts. And I want to just lay that out. Let's let's acknowledge that this is a list of how to live and how not to live. But I also want to clarify something. Paul does in this letter what he does in all of his letters. He begins with who they are. The indicatives of what Jesus has done in his people always precedes the imperatives of how they are to live. He tells them what the gospel has done. He reminds them what Jesus has worked in their life, that God has made them new creations. And it's because of who they are in Christ, because of the gospel, that they are to do this and to not do that. The indicatives, the truths of who they are precedes the imperatives of what they are to do. So let's look at that instead of just taking my word for it. Paul writes to this church, to these holy and faithful brothers and sisters in Colossus, and he reminds them of who they are. Listen to some of these verses in the first couple of chapters. In 1 verse 13, he says, "'For God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves.'" in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. In verse 21 of chapter 1, he says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Continues on in chapter 2, he tells them that they have been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised Jesus from the dead. He tells them that when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you Alive with Christ. He forgave your sins. And then chapter 3 comes and verse 1 says this Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Now notice this. Who they are precedes what they are to do. And you may be saying, Why are you making such a big deal of this? And here's the reason why. Because you may be in this room this morning, uh, you you may be watching somewhere else. You may be a Christian who's bought into one thing or an unbeliever who doesn't know much at all about Christianity. And you're buying into this notion that the Christian message is about what you do and don't do, that it's about your behavior, your performance, or what is right for you to do. And so you're hearing this text and you say, see, I knew it. Christianity and the Christian message is about what I do and what I don't do. It's not. I want to state that up front. It is not. The Christian message is this. And this needs to be heard by people who don't believe and people who do believe because we need to be reminded of this regularly. The Christian message is this, that we were sinners, that we had rebelled against God, that God created each of us And had standards for us by which we were to live. And we have rebelled against Him. We have disobeyed Him. And in doing so, we have been separated from Him. That our sin has made a division between us and Him. And it has brought us under His just and righteous wrath. But God, God is rich in mercy. So He didn't leave us there. Instead, He sent His Son, His only Son, to live the life we were created to live and, the, and to die the death that our, our, our rebellion deserved. So Jesus took our sin on his shoulders on the cross. Jesus took the punishment for our sin on the cross and he died in our place. Well, three days later, he was raised up again and vindicated by his resurrection every claim he had made that for anyone who will trust in Jesus, they will be saved. And notice that anyone who trusts in Jesus will be saved. So if you're sitting here thinking, yeah, but you don't know me, you're probably right. But he does. If you're thinking that you're too bad to be saved, you haven't met God yet. You haven't seen Jesus rightly yet. If you think you are too good to need saving, You haven't met yourself yet. (laughs) God, in his great mercy, sent Jesus to save sinners. And if you are here this morning and you're trusting in him to make you right with God, then praise God. If you're here this morning and you're trusting in anything else, stop. I'm just going to give you an imperative. Stop. Look to Jesus because there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved, including your name. You cannot do it, but Jesus has done it for you. Trust in him. What we mean by that is not a one of us are saying, hey, look, so I got dressed today. I put on a coat and a tie. It's terribly uncomfortable. By this, I don't mean that I've got it all together. By this, I don't mean that I'm better than you. By this, I mean we're going to dress nice and we're going to come together and we're going to worship Jesus who saves sinners like me, okay? If you're here this morning, wonderful. I hope you're trusting in Christ. And if you have any questions about that, come find me after the service. But that right there is the truth that precedes the therefore. You've heard Dr. Uss say it. When you see a therefore, you ask what the therefore is Therefore, what's it there for? That's the truth, the gospel that precedes verse 12. Clarity on the gospel, understanding of who we are precedes what we are to do. But clarity on the gospel also empowers what we are to do. You're seeing this list of do's and don'ts and you may be one of those people that have tried to be good before. It's tough. It doesn't usually work. So the gospel is what not only precedes a life that God calls us to, it empowers us towards that life. You see, what's happening here is Paul has set out for them who they are, and now he's going to tell them, "'Because of who you are, this is how you should live.'" Look with me at verse 12. Paul writing to this church says, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Listen, if you are in Christ this morning, if you are a believer in Jesus, that's you. That's who he's talking to. You are his, you have been declared holy, and you are dearly loved. Paul begins his letter to the Ephesians in the same way, and this is what he says, and this is important. He says, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons. Catch that, that His love of you is before the foundation of the world that He sets His love on you. And you need to hear that because you may just be buying into this, the, 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 the lie that we often believe that God's love of you is going to be based on how well you do the stuff He asks you to do, how well you obey, how well you perform, how well you do these things. And you need to be reminded that His love of you is not based on your performance. It's not based on your behavior. It's not based on your goodness or your abilities. He has loved you since before the foundation of the world. And that means that on your very worst days, he loves you immensely. And on your very best days, he loves you immensely. That what you do or don't do can neither improve his perfect love or lessen it. Now, I, I know a lot of you. I don't know all of you, but you know we have a larger family. So we have seven kids, and we uh, have adopted two boys from Ethiopia. And I'll, I'll never forget when one of our sons came home from Ethiopia, he was uh, five and didn't speak very much English at all. He had the basics. He could say chocolate and Spider-Man. Um <laughs> So he could have like a real conversation with people, but a few more fillers was, were needed, you know. And so over the next two months, he really just starts pouring into English because it's what he's hearing and he's speaking to us. And I'll never forget about two months probably in, six, eight weeks in, he's standing in the kitchen with me and we're washing dishes together. And he looks up at me and says, Dad, look at all I've done. Do you love me now? Here's what he didn't know. He did not know that before he'd ever met us, before he ever knew he was going to be a Cuthbertson, the walls of our house were covered with pictures of him. He had no idea. He had no idea that in his orphanage in Ethiopia, they would update pictures of the kids to their Shutterfly account. And me and my wife would uh, would go to the computer. I think it was mostly her. I'm taking credit for it. She would go to the computer. She would download these pictures or I think we would take them to Walgreens at that point and have them printed out. They'd go in a frame, they'd go on our wall and we'd walk by and we would see this picture of our son who we had never met before. He didn't know any of that. He didn't know that as we'd walk by those photos, we'd pray for him. He didn't know that before he'd ever seen us or laid eyes on us, we loved him. He was our son. He didn't know any of that. And so here he is, finally in my home, in our home, and he's trying to do things to earn what he's already got. Does it sound familiar? Do we not do that so often? Do we not fall into this place where we try to earn what we've already got? Friends, if you are in Christ this morning, you are His. You are holy. You are dearly loved. Don't try to earn what you already possess. Don't try to perform to get something that His mercy has already given you. Don't strive for it. You, believer, are his beloved child, and in you he is well pleased. And upon this adoption into his family through faith, he gives us a new identity in Christ, and he says, because you are my son, and I, I said this in the 9, I'm going to say it again here, good fathers have expectations for their children. uh Let me just say the opposite too. If you have no expectations for your kids, the way they act, the way they live, the way they treat others, um, we need to talk about what being a good father means, right? Your father in heaven loves you immensely and he loves you too much to have no expectations on you. And so he gives us these expectations here. You are to live in a certain way And here's one of the main primary ways. When God calls you to life in Christ, he calls you to life together, period. When God calls you to life in Christ, he calls you to life together. Notice something here. If we're reading through these expectations, Paul gives them about how Christians are to live and each call is not in the singular, it's actually in the plural, plural. So what you're seeing here is not you put off or you clothe yourself, it is y'all put on. He's a good southern Israelite, y'all put on, y'all clothe yourself with this. And the reason why is because every single command in here isn't simply an individual command, it is a corporate one that what God is doing right here is calling us together to fight for holiness calling us together to fight to be clothed with compassion and with kindness and with humility and with gentleness and patience these are the marks of the children of God he goes on to say bear with each other and forgive one another, forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in y'all's hearts, y'all's hearts. It sounds really kind of trashy when you add in y'all, doesn't it? Like King James would not approve. Um, let the peace of Christ rule in y'all's hearts, since of members of one body, y'all were called to peace. Notice that everything He calls you to is relational in nature. It involves and necessitates other people. And he sums it up in verse 17 when he says this, whatever you do, whether it's what you say or it's what you do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, when the Bible talks about names, and you've probably noticed this the Bible talks about names, and when it names someone, what does it do next? It gives kind of the definition of their name, right? What it means, because their name is to be a, an, a, a, a representation of their character, of what they are like, of what they, uh, how they live, of what they value, whatever it may be. The name is a representation of their character. That's the biblical means of it. And now notice what Paul is saying here. Whatever you do, whatever you say... Do it all in the name, in the character, in the attributes of God. Everything you say, say it in such a way that rightly models your Father in heaven. Everything you do, do it in such a way where people see Jesus rightly. People see what He's like. I'm going to add another one here. Um, I don't mean this in like a revelation dangerous I'm adding to a Scripture thing. Let's, let's just say this. Uh, everything you type, be it on social media, be it on text, be it on whatever, let it be in the character and in the name of God. That's the call and the character of the Christian, that our lives are lived in His name, in His compassion, His kindness, His humility, His gentleness, and His patience. Whatever you do, whatever you say, bear with, what, with others and forgive others. And above all things, put on love because what we know about God is our God is love. You see what He's doing? He's saying that you are going to be transformed into the nature of Christ, right, with His character, with His attributes, that you will live and treat others in the way that He lives and treats you. It's all relational. It's all corporate. He's laying out for us what we are to be, but He's doing more than that. He's laying out for us how we are to get there. This isn't just what be this. It's here's how you do it. Notice, he's not simply saying, you put off, you fight against, you clothe yourself. He's saying, hey, y'all, join arms together and fight for holiness. Together, put off the earthly nature and put on God's character in all things. See, here's the truth. God did not simply intend you to be changed by the gospel. He intended you to be changed by the gospel in community that he's not simply using the gospel. He's using people who have been changed by the gospel to make you more like Jesus. And so Paul's call here is to say, hey, y'all, do this together. You see, when God chose you and set his love on you before the foundation of the world and said, you will be in my family, I'm bringing you in through faith, he also said something so loving. He said, I'm not only gonna bring you into my family, I'm going to bring you into this family. That if you're here and you're a member, let me just say this, you're you're not here simply because you like the preaching. You're not here simply because you like the music. God in his love not only said you will be in my family, but you will be in this family. That as you look around you this morning, In God's sovereignty, these are the brothers and sisters with whom He's chosen to bless and by whom He's chosen to sanctify you and make you more like Christ. Well, that's all well and good, but how does that happen? And he gives that answer. Look at verse 16 with me. This is what he says. When you gather together, so what what we're doing now, when you gather together, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and as you admonish one another with all wisdom. Friends, we, we talk about being a gospel centered church and that's what we want to be, but don't make the mistake of thinking what we mean by that is that the gospel's only coming from here or that the gospel's only coming from the, 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 the teaching classrooms. What our hope is for that, our prayer is for that, and what we're pursuing for that is that we are a church made of brothers and sisters who are dwelling in and giving the gospel to one another, who extend grace to one another, who live in light of the gospel, who remind one another of God's love for them, and who by the grace of God are modeling His character. Paul says this should be what dwells among you, a gospel-centeredness. Like, think back to that video. I, I found the Robinsons before and I said, I love that video. Wasn't that awesome? Because here's what's true. We often make the mistake of thinking that because we are strong, God looks strong. Is that what he says? He says, usually it's through your weakness that his strength is sound, that, uh, that my strength is perfected in your Weakness. Now think about how we live too often. We too often treat our uh, Christian community like it's a Facebook community. We, we put together a compilation of our accomplishments, of our strengths, of our good things that we're doing, of all the ways that we're doing well, and we put forth all our successes before others. And essentially, all we're doing is presenting an airbrush model of ourselves. Must be honest, that person doesn't even exist. But the Christian community calls you to something else entirely, nothing like that. This community calls you to remember and rehearse the gospel, to remember that as you come together with these brothers and sisters, you can be honest, not only about your strengths, but about your weaknesses. And you can be real with them, not only about your successes and your victories, but about your failures as well. You can can confess to your struggles and your fears because it is through your weakness that God's power will be shown. And it's through our need that we daily recognize God's gracious provision. If our community is built on the gospel of grace, then it can't be built on the gospel of performance. And if it's built and dwelling in the gospel, then we should not be surprised when one of our brothers and sisters comes to us in need of grace. You know, you want to know how it looks when a church believes the gospel? Ultimately, this is the best answer I can come up with. When a, when a church has become a community where the gospel is centered, you know it because its members are unafraid to confess their sins. They're unafraid to confess their, sh- sh- their struggles and even their doubts to one another. And the reason they are is because they wholly believe the gospel that their standing before God or you is not built on their performance. It's not based on how well they've got it together. It's based on Christ's righteousness. When we come to that place where we know the gospel enough to say, look, I can confess my weaknesses to you. I can confess my struggles to you in wisdom. I can confess these, these failures to you because I know that the gospel is true, that Jesus has made me enough. And I know that as I'm coming to you, you know that the gospel is true and that you are going to give grace and point me back to the gospel. This is how we know when we become unafraid to confess our weaknesses together. That's what Paul's calling them to, be a community that dwells on the word of Christ, on the gospel of Christ, not just from here, but in every place. But he says something else here. He also says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, not only as you teach and encourage one another, but as you do that in your singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitudes in your heart to God. Let's just uh, give a captain obvious moment here. Life is hard, isn't it? Life is hard. Work is hard. Family is hard. Marriage is hard. Relationships are hard. Church is hard. And we walk by faith and not by sight. We we, we say with Paul, we're pressed in on every side. We we feel that. But praise be to God, we are not alone. Paul actually says this, that our singing, our corporate singing as we come together is a means by which we teach and remind and admonish one another with truth. A few years ago, this was 10 years ago now, and I still can barely tell this story, so you may have to bear with me. Uh, I told you we were adopting, and what most people don't know that I guess a lot of people are going to figure out right about now is um, before our two sons came home, we were adopting another little boy. Um, if we would have adopted him, we would not have adopted the other boys. We had God and his sovereignty had a different plan for us. But we were adopting a little baby who was, we knew was sick. We knew he had an illness and we knew his illness would one that if he stayed in Ethiopia, he would die from it. But if he got back to the States, he, he could thrive. It wouldn't be a, a, a big deal at all. And so here we were, just like in the other story, we had the pictures of him everywhere. His name was Max. That's what. Well, his name was not Max. We called him Max. We were going to name him Max. And we, we had pictures of Max everywhere, and we would walk by those pictures, and we would see him, and we'd pray, God, bring him home. Sustain him. Keep him healthy. Bring him home. And well, finally, the court date was set, and, um, and, and that really just means that Max was no longer just going to be Max. He was going to be Max Cuthbertson. It's a great last name, isn't it? Couldn't have been a Smith or something like that. Max Cuthbertson, okay? And, and so we were excited, and our church rejoiced with us. They had been on the road with us the whole time, praying with us, praying for us. And then uh, I think a couple of days later, it was a Sunday, we get a call, hey, he's been rushed to the hospital. Things, things aren't good. And uh, they said he was having seizures, and uh, we get, we, so we prayed. And our church prayed, our church was right like I say, right there with us every step of the way. And they were praying, we were praying, and then we got a call a couple hours later that just said he didn't make it. And I, I take comfort in I take comfort in the fact that, that when he died, he was not fatherless. You know, he was not motherless. He was not an unwanted orphan. He had people praying for him. Desiring him, claiming that him as their own. And I, we look forward to meeting him one day. That's why I don't tell this story. Well, finally, uh, I, 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 don't, I don't know how we did it. We got ready for church. I don't know why we did it. But we were going to church that morning and we crushed, heartbroken, um, struggling to believe we get dressed, we go to church. And I remember sitting in our pastor's office and my, my, hands, are, my, my hands are on my face and we're, we're weeping and telling him, telling him the story. And he doesn't say a word. And so it's enough to where I look up to see, has he left? Like, how long did we go? Is it like eleven fifteen? And he had to walk out. But I see him and he hasn't said a word the whole time. He's just got tears streaming down his face. And it was the best thing I could have heard that day. That it, when I was weeping, when we were weeping, he was weeping with us. What a good brother. We leave his office. We go into the sanctuary, and we're, we're trying. I'm sorry for the sniffling in the microphone. That's got to be terribly annoying. We're, we're, we're standing, and we're trying to sing, and just, I, I couldn't sing. It was It was the best I could do to listen and just hear what was happening. And then, There comes a place in the service where one of my favorite songs is played in Christ alone, and my knees just give out, and I fall, I kind of fall into the pew, and I just start weeping again because we, like I said, we were crushed, just crushed, and a, a friend of mine who now pastors in Greenville, South Carolina, he and his wife are a few pews behind us, and they walk up, and he puts his hand on my shoulder, I will never forget this. He puts his hand on my shoulder, and he says, he just starts singing. And I hear him singing, in Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, the solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. And it was as if God was saying to me, hey, I know you're hurting. I know you're crushed, and I want you to know that this is exactly why you're in a family. This is exactly what my church is meant to be. Because while I was sitting there, my faith was shaken. My soul was crushed. My heart was broken. And when I couldn't fight the fight of faith, my brother walks up and he fights it for me. His singing was God's means by which I was reminded that God is still good and I could still trust him. Friends, your singing here, your presence here, your humility Your giftings, God tells us, is a means by which he is upholding and encouraging your brothers and sisters here. That's true for songs you like and for songs you may not, that your singing is a means that God has blessed this family with to encourage and teach one another. I want to be honest with you, because I think this is true for all of us. I can't do this without you. I just can't. But I was never meant to. And neither were you. In God's great love, he hasn't set us out on our own. He hasn't. Even just giving us simple acquaintances or even some okay friends. He's given us brothers and sisters. He's given us family, and I want you to know that I'm thankful for you. I've been encouraged by you, challenged by you, convicted by you, spurred on by you. And this gospel-centered community is what God is using to build in me compassion and kindness and humility and then gentleness and His character. And that's what he's doing in you as well. I don't know how you're coming in today, but I totally understand why Dr. Yusef brings, uh, you know, handkerchiefs up here now. <laughs> I don't know how you're coming in today. You may be like I was that day where you are crushed. Where it took all you had to get dressed and just drive here this morning. Where you're, you're wondering if you still believe this stuff. You're wondering if God is good and he is caring for you. And I want you to know something. If that's where you are, we're glad you are here. You belong here. And our hope for you is that you will be reminded and restored and find eternal and enjoyable and everlasting life together here with us. But whomever you are, recognize the gift that God has given you in Christian brothers and sisters. As Dr. Yusuf taught last week, remember, recognize the ways he's gifted you to dig into this body and be instrumental in building up and maturing this family. I, I, don't, I don't know what it looks like for you. I don't know what involvement here looks like, but I encourage you to don't waste it. Don't neglect it. Go to him and say, okay, God, what, what does my involvement look, here, look like here? How have you gifted me to be involved here? How can I seek these good, real, raw relationships with brothers and sisters here? Because I see that you have told me that I need it and that it's a gift for me. Talk to your spouse. Talk to your kids. Talk to your friends. Listen and then dig in. And he will do a mighty work to bring joy not only in you but through you. Now may we say together, may God glorify himself through our preaching, through our praying, through our presence, and through our singing for his glory and for the good of his sons and daughters. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your gospel. And we pray that, God, you would bring good fruit here. That for those who are, uh, are weary, you would give them rest. For those who are broken, you would bind them up. For those who are faint hearted, you would encourage. For those who are experiencing great joy in salvation, may that joy overflow into those around us. Father, we are in this together, and that is a gift you have given us. May none of us waste it move in us, work in our hearts to pursue gospel community that dwells in the word of Christ together, not built on performance, not built on goodness, but built on your goodness and your faithfulness for us. God, we know you desire mighty things for this family. We pray that you would move. In Jesus' name, amen.